Honor your father and mother by taking the faith that they gave you and running with it, right? Take the torch, take the baton. You don't honor the person that gave you the baton by just camping out and dropping it. You honor them by running. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. Well, I've been getting a little flack about using only country music references, so um, bringing a little rock and roll in this morning. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, and you know, you may not love his politics, but you can't argue with the, music, the musical quality here. Uh, in his book, Born to Run, and a recent Broadway performance that's based on the book, Springsteen describes his complex relationship with his father. Uh, he describes a scene that's right before his wife is going to give birth to their first child, and he talks about it. He said his dad made the trip and drove all the way to his house and showed up about 11 o'clock one morning. And he sat down at his kitchen table and he said, Bruce, I wasn't very good to you. And that's all that he said. And here's what Bruce Springsteen writes about that moment. He said, that was it. That was all that I needed, all that was necessary. I was blessed on that day and giving something by my father that I thought I'd never live to see. A brief recognition of the truth. A brief recognition of the truth. You know, our experience with our parents ranges from affirming to abusive, from present to distant, from qualities we plan to replicate to experiences we seek to guard our children from at all costs. But the grand vision for parenting is the wisdom of God. Creating us through families rather than some other technology. You know, God in His wisdom saw fit that we would be born of fragile human beings, fathers and mothers, rather than just making us appear, which He could have done. It would have been within His power to do so. And we can behold all around us parents and grandparents who are providing extraordinary care and steady affection, a solid framework for life. I don't remember if it was a theologian that I read in seminary or my friend Jason as we were conversing about this in seminary, but he said, you know, have you ever thought about the fact that the first thing, the, the way that a baby first sees the face of God is by looking at his or her mother, Right? It's this way where we as parents have the dignity of being the portal to the face of God to our children. There's great dignity in parenting. As we know, however, evil enters the family uh, just as it enters everything else. At the fall of humankind, we read about in Genesis at the fall, uh, evil enters the family, and now too often those who are appointed by God to care for and nurture children end up causing them unspeakable harm. And parenting according to evil, of course, goes way back. goes way back to before the Old Testament records that we have, but certainly in the Old Testament. Do you remember Lot from the Bible? Do you remember how he was condemned for the way that he harmed his daughters? Do you remember Saul, the king who stood by, the subpar king who stood by while his three sons died at his side for a hopeless cause that he championed? All three of them. 
So what then? I mean, are we supposed to honor those people who are dishonorable? I think the whole of Scripture would affirm that this is not the heart of the fourth commandment. This is not the heart of the fourth word that we would spend a lot of our time trying to figure out how to honor people who are dishonorable. In the case of dishonor, we end up honoring the choices that people make by letting them go, not by trusting them a hundred times again. The underlying assumption of the fourth word and the fourth commandment is that the parents that we are called to honor will be practicing the commandments with the rest of us. It implies that everybody's giving this a shot, along with us. If mom and dad are worshiping other gods, then it doesn't really follow that we would honor them by worshiping the same gods that they're worshiping. That would go against the first three words that we've already seen. I was thinking about this. I told Amberly yesterday, I said, I need like this crazy example, just something that's so far-fetched, just so that we, because there are so many complex and diverse experiences that we have. I need something that's just really, not really close to anyone's, you know, actual life. And so I chose Jesse James, all right? And if any of you grew up like Jesse James's or, or, you know, his potential progeny, then I apologize. But I was imagining, you know, if Jesse James was my dad, I mean, that would be really cool on one hand. But on the other hand, if Jesse James was my dad and I was called to honor my father, uh, you know, and then I was trying to follow the Christian life, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if I was required to learn the art of thievery and train robbing just like my dad, right? That's what that would indicate. So um, it wouldn't mean carrying on his well-refined practices of stealing, which again would betray other commandments, other words that we'll get to later. So <clears throat> we are in a study on the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words as, as we call them and as we see in Scripture, and we're learning so much about the heart of God in these words that these words are not primarily just things that we don't do, but they're creating a pathway. They're creating a space for us to live fully. We remember that the first word is God saying, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I saved you. I rescued you. And I set you up for a life that is worth living. That's the heart of the Ten Commandments. And we miss that first word. All the rest of these are just going to, you know, we're going to have that old repetition of thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Christianity is all about what we don't do. It's really about what we're supposed to do, though. We take the negative commandment that's meant to save our life, and we see the positive outworkings of each of these words. Now, I recognize that on the one hand, gratitude and honor for imperfect parents is all of our realities. No one has a situation that's different than that. Everyone has a complex relationship. Therefore, you know, working with imperfection is what we've got. But on the other hand, we must be careful and guarded and never be grateful or honor evil or the ways that goodness has been muffled in our lives. In learning what it means to honor, we must resist the acceptance of evil as good or letting ourselves or others off the hook when we perpetuate evil. And just like forgiving our parents or those that have served us as a way of experiencing grace and releasing the power that bitterness and anger can have over us, honoring our parents requires an honest appraisal. Our actual experience relating to them, what it was actually like, not what we hoped it would be. And the road to healing and restoration where parents are concerned will be as complex and varied as our experiences of our parents. So 
This is kind of a side note or an interlude, and this is worthwhile work. And you may feel like that's the step of obedience after hearing this word is that to go and take a step towards reconciliation with your parents or with people that were your guardians. But this is work that should not be undertaken alone. It's like forgiveness. It's a, it can be a really tight line to walk. And so we always want to do that with other people, with close friends, with people who have the ability to see objectively, counselors, uh, spiritual leaders who can help us navigate that path when we need to. So what is the heart of this commandment? What is the heart of this word that Abby read for us? You know, honor your father and your mother uh, that you may live long in the land that I have given you. What is going on here? What is the heart? And at first, you know, if you've got little kids, uh, we all have been at that place where like, man, I wish I could drag you to church right now and have somebody tell you to honor your mother and father, right? <laughs> if someone would just walk in here and say, hey, may, see, you, the Bible says, make your bed, go do it. I told you to do it, honor me, go get it done, right? Take care of business. Um, but notice in the text that the audience doesn't change. It's not like the God shifts and says, okay, hang on, parents, now I'm going to talk to the kids for a second. He just keeps talking to everybody. And this is all of us. And so I've come to realize this is really a word that has to do with, with us adults. I mean, the kids, you know, they can certainly learn that, and we want to teach them that. But we have our hands full with honoring folks and with carrying on the values of the faith that we have received. Another observation is we just start out at the very beginning. Honor your father and mother. Notice that mothers are mentioned in the Ten Commandments here. Now remember, this is a, this is a patriarchal society where everything moves through the father. I mean, land ownership, everything. They lived in groups. So if you think of like a modern-day subdivision with the gate and everything, that would basically be the father's house. Every house that's inside that gated community is run by the father. He literally holds the power of life and death. Nothing happens without him knowing, and if he wants something to happen, it happens. If you want to live in the father's house, even if you're an adult and you've got 12 of your own kids and you're 45 years old, if your father's living, he has authority over you. That's how it worked in those days. And so to, for God to mention mothers explicitly, I think is extraordinary. It's profound that he says, hey, honor your father and your mother. Not just your father, but honor your mother. And it's a beautiful turn of phrase. It's a beautiful thing to be included in these ten precious words. I think the heart of the commandment can be summarized in two, kind of two sides of the, of the word. And the first one is that there are vulnerable people in our families. There are vulnerable people in our midst. And it's got to be somebody's job to take care of them, right? And that, again, in that society, uh, it was very common. Brevard Childs is a great and renowned Old Testament scholar says, you know, the, the background context for this commandment is it was perfectly acceptable when your parents couldn't work anymore because they were because of age or because of sickness. It was okay to kick them outside the fence. I mean, you could do that, and no one's going to get on to you. That was just part of the, how society worked. And so it was radical for God to say, honor your father and mother by taking care of them when they're vulnerable, when they can't work anymore and they're there and someone needs to take care of them, it's the family's job to do so. Caring for the vulnerable. Care for the vulnerable among you and honor them with dignity. I was trying to parse it out. What does this word honor really mean? And it's a, it's a struggle word. We're just talking through it all week, trying to figure it out. And I think I'm, I'm happiest in this part of the commandment is saying to honor someone is to bestow dignity upon them. 
That can be done publicly. It can be done in front of people. It can be done behind the scenes when no one ever notices, and you give a living person dignity, and it reminds them that they were created in the image of God. That's the heart of what it means to honor someone who's vulnerable. There's a great little scene that's captured by Dr. Ira Bjork, and he writes, A student once asked the anthropologist Margaret Mead, what is the earliest sign of civilization? Okay, this is someone who studied ancient civilizations her whole life, and a student asked her, what's the earliest sign that there was a civilization someplace? And the student, of course, thought it would be, well, there's this sort of clay pot, or there's this kind of tool that you'll see first, maybe a weapon. But Margaret Mead thought for a moment, and she said, a healed femur, a healed femur is the first sign of civilization. A femur, as you know, is the longest bone in the body. It's linking the hip to the knee. And in societies without the benefits of modern medicine, it takes about six weeks of rest for a fractured femur to heal. And a healed femur shows that someone cared for that injured, vulnerable person and did their hunting and their gathering and stayed with them and offered them physical protection and human companionship until that injury could heal. Mead explained that where the law of the jungle is all there is, the survival of the fittest, uh, where that rules, there are no healed femurs to be found. So the first sign of civilization is compassion, as seen in a healed femur. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that great evidence for what we're talking about? Care for the, for the vulnerable among you. Honor them with dignity. I have seen this in this congregation in so many ways. Uh, I just wrote a letter last week to someone who I observed caring for their parent at the end of their life. And it is so moving to see it. It's beautiful. It's really, really hard, as you know. But I've seen it. I've seen it in other churches that we have served. I've witnessed this in my grandmother's life. One of my early memories of going to their ranch in Kansas was watching both of my great-grandmothers, so this is my grandmother's mother and my grandmother's mother-in-law, sitting in rocking chairs together in the living room. You know, if you want to imagine a scene there where you're trying to do your housely duties with your mother and your mother-in-law weighing in on how that should be done. Uh, so she did that um, at the end of their lives. I've witnessed this in my own mother's life in ways that I only realized after I became an adult. I realized that my mother, when she was young, facilitated the end-of-life care and the burial of her father, her stepfather, and her brother. Not only does honoring our father and mother mean taking care of the vulnerable people among us, but it also means carrying on the heart of what these words represent altogether. It means carrying on the faith. Right? This, that's the real heart of this commandment is honor your father and mother by taking the faith that they gave you and running with it. Right? Take the torch. Take the baton. You don't honor the person that gave you the baton by just camping out and dropping it. You honor them by running. And that's how we honor our father and mother in the faith is we carry on the faith that they passed on to us. We honor by living what we have seen and heard. If you are at a place in your life where you practice your faith, where you honor God, where you honor the Son of God who gave his life for us on a cross, if this is somehow by miracle the most important thing in your life, you can bet that you can rewind and remember someone that cradled you in the infant stages of your faith, 
someone that held your hand when you began taking your first steps of faith, someone that was there to pick you up when you fell down in your faith for the first couple of times and they picked you back up and helped you walk again. You can think of those people. It's phenomenal. This, this word to honor someone in this context, in this part of the Ten Commandments, is the kind of honor that's usually reserved for God only. This is a wild thing that we're being encouraged to do, to honor somebody like we would honor God for the faith that we've received and the faith that we have the hope of carrying on. It reminds us of the great responsibility that is ours as Christians to live and to share and to teach the beliefs and the practices of our faith among anyone who has ears to hear. And sometimes that's our own kids, but sometimes our kids aren't able to hear us. Sometimes we can't hear our parents sharing their faith with us. And it takes someone else. So thanks be to God that we have Sunday school teachers and aunts and uncles and friends who will remind our kids what it looks like to live for Christ. Martin Luther loved to talk about the Ten Commandments, and when he did, he would always, when he was explaining it to children and to everybody else, he would say, you know, the first commandment is this, and then you get on down here, he would say, honor your father and mother. He said, we should fear and love God so much that we would do X, Y, Z. We should fear and love God so much that we do the next X, Y, Z. And it's so true, right? If we fear and love God above everything else, that's what our kids are going to fear and love. But if we fear and love 10 other things more than we fear and love God, those are the things that our kids are going to fear and love. They're going to be burdened by them in the same way that we were. So we set them free by fearing and loving God more than anything else. And they see that it's possible to live that way. There were two guys, two pastors, who uh, officiated Amberly and I's wedding. Uh, we, we couldn't decide how it was going to work out, and we both had just mentors in the faith that we wanted to honor and be a part of our wedding, and so we just asked two people to do it, and actually a third friend to do something at the end who was also a pastor, but we had Don Boren and Steve Venable officiated our wedding. And for both of us, those guys have been fathers in the faith to us. They have showed us how to live. If I ever do anything virtuous as a man of God or as a pastor, you could trace it back to Don Boren. You could trace it back to his life and his investment in me and his prayers for me and his willingness to be patient with me. You could trace it back to Steve Venable walking with me through hard times in my life. The rituals and liturgies of the church are beautiful in this regard. Um, you know, when we do a baptism, we, we have this moment in the service where a, a representative from the congregation, who's preferably a non-family member, will present the candidate for baptism for baptism. So like when our little Reese was baptized, uh, when she was about six months old, we had Shirley Stevenson stand up before the congregation and she held Reese in her arms and she said, I present Teresa Strebeck for baptism. And it was this moving moment where you just see that, that we're not, it's not just up to Amberly and I to nurture the faith of our kids, but it's the church's job. And Shirley stood up there and represented the church and said, I'm presenting this child for baptism. And then we carried on with the service. We've done that same thing here in our congregation when we've had baptisms. And then we say at the end of the service, right, I, we promise to nurture this person in their faith. We promise to keep believing what we're believing. We continue to model that for these kids. We promise to nurture them and disciple them that they may become disciples of Jesus who walk in the way that leads to life. That's what we promise. 
it's one of the mysteries of life and sometimes the bummers of life that we don't get to choose our parents, right? We don't get to choose our parents. Some of us get way better than we deserve and, and those kind of things, but we don't get to pick our parents. But we do get to choose our God. And if we choose our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then we do get to choose our family. We do get to choose our family. And that family is called the church. That's who we are. We're the family for those who are believing in Jesus and who are growing up in the faith. I want to wrap up with this moving scene that uh, Abby read for us in John 19. I mean, you can picture it, right? Jesus is taking his last breaths. He's, he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm thirsty. He's just got a couple of more things that he's going to say. He's recognizing that the whole deal is finished. And right before he says, it is finished, he looks at his mother, his biological mother, Mary. And then he looks at John, the beloved disciple. And he says, hey, mom, that's your son. And he looks at John and he says, hey, John, that's your mom now. And what does John do? John takes Jesus' mom home, and that's her new home. I mean, can you think of anything more that more illustrates what this means, that when we, when we become a part of God's church, this is the family that we're talking about. If you honor your father and mother, if you practice their faith, the promise is that we'll live long in the land. Now, what does that mean? We know plenty of people who have honored their father and mother and didn't literally live long in the land, but this idea of obtaining the land and possessing the land has to do with the presence of God. And so I've kind of been thinking about it this week and translating it. If, if you honor your father and mother, if you practice their faith, you will always be God's people. You will always be God's people. If you honor your father and your mother in the faith, if you take care of the vulnerable in your midst, you will never cease to recognize the face of God. You will never be too far from the presence of God. And you will remember that you will always be a child of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.